This is a CBC podcast. In the early 1960s, the King of Soul was in a funk. Sam Cooke had dozens of hit singles Wonderful World, Chain Gang, Twisting the Night Away. He was rich and famous, but something was eating at him. The night that he and his wife got turned away from a hotel in Louisiana because they were black, then arrested because he complained. So he decided to write a protest song. I was born by the river in a little tent. He was nervous about it, though. He was a pop singer, and this was political. How would his white fans respond? It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. He sang the song live just once on the Johnny Carson Show. From New York, the Tonight Show, Months later, he was killed, some say murdered. Only then was the song released as the B-side of a single, and it didn't do so great on the charts. But the song became a civil rights anthem. It resonates now more than ever, covered by everyone from Celine Dion to Beyonce. Almost 60 years ago, Sam Cooke faced a tough reality. One we all face sometimes. If change was going to come, he needed to be the change. I'm Duncan McHugh, and this is a hell of a story. In 1969, in Montreal... West Indian students at Sir George Williams University, which is now known as Concordia, were also fighting for change. They decided to barricade themselves in a computer lab. That sparked a protest that changed the conversation about racism in Canada. Here's David Gutnick with their story. And a heads up, the N-word is used in this doc by one of the students to describe what he experienced during the protest. People say things have changed, okay? And I would say, well, well, yes, things have changed. But what does it mean that things have changed? It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. My name is Rodney John, and I'm one of the six students who signed the complaint that led to the events that culminated in the riots and the destruction of the computer in 1969. The occupation of the university's computer center by black and white students, which began last night, is still on. Here's Ron LaPlante. The students feel the center is absolutely vital to the operation of the university. Therefore, they reason, the administration is vulnerable and must come to terms soon. We're standing 
between Mackay and Bishop Ondemezener Street, right in front of the Hall Building of the Sir George Williams campus, the downtown campus of what is now Concordia University. Fifty years ago, there were hundreds of people lined around this building looking up at the students through the window and also watching computer cards fall from the sky, just like the snowflakes that are falling from the sky right now. It was a huge event, a profoundly significant event, and probably the most important student protest in Canada of the 1960s and one of the most important global student protests. Let's go up to the ninth floor where the computer protest took place. David Austin's in his late 40s. He was a youth worker for years. Now, Austin teaches humanities in a suburban CJEP, a community college. He spends his free time digging into the history of the black community in Montreal and writing about it. His book, Fear of a Black Nation, Race, Sex and Security in 60s Montreal, is an in-depth and unabashedly political examination of why a classroom conflict between six black biology students and their professor took on a life of its own. Right up here on the next floor is the mezzanine where a huge rally took place. Rocky Jones, people from the United States, members of the Black Panther Party and Black Power Movement from across the border, as well as in Canada, they were involved in a rally up here. He said that if you are white, you are right. If you are brown, stand around. And if you are black, get back. Is this the general feeling of the Sir George students now? In the late 1960s, many of the 50,000 or so black people in Montreal lived in the neighborhoods of Little Burgundy and St. Henry and belonged to long-standing institutions, the Negro Community Center and Colored Women's Club. They found jobs on the railway, in factories and small shops. But only a handful of people from that vibrant working-class community ever made it to university. The black students at Sir George Williams and McGill were from the U.S. or Jamaica or other English-speaking Caribbean islands, Barbados, St. Vincent, Grenada, Trinidad and Tobago. And they tended to be from families that had a lot more money than the blacks who had called Canada home for generations. In many respects, we had large numbers of black Canadians who were kind of outsiders looking in. But what came in the 1950s and 60s, and particularly the 60s from the Caribbean, is sort of, in some respects, brought a different kind of energy. And I'm, and I'm saying it very carefully because I don't want to say better or worse, just different. People were coming from countries that had just become independent or were in the process of fighting for their independence, right? And they brought that spirit and struggle to this context. But they weren't used to dealing with racism. So when they came and encountered it, it was almost like a shock to their system. It was almost inevitable that once they began to experience racism inside the classroom, they were going to respond in a certain kind of way. But also, it rallied members of the wider community who had been living here and had that same experience, not so much in the university environment, but in the wider society. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Nineteen sixty-eight. Civil rights activists were in shock in the morning. The Black Panthers called for armed resistance. American athletes gave black-fisted salutes on the Olympic podium. 
There were anti-colonial uprisings across Africa. Wherever the black man is, he is colonized. For a week, Montreal became the center of the black power universe with an international congress of black writers. Radical American activist Stokely Carmichael was the star. Wherever the black man is found, he is on the bottom of the ladder. And there must be reasons for this other than just economic. I would say the reasons happen to be a deep, ingrained racism produced by white Western society. This was almost like a wake-up call in Canada because nobody thought that people could come to the, within the Canadian context and speak about race and racism. The conversations that took place, what the speakers were saying, situated Canada within that global political context. It was those angry conversations that gave the Sir George Williams students a new perspective on what had happened to them in Professor Perry Anderson's biology class. All of the West Indians in that class had some issue of some personal interaction with Anderson that raised questions. On the special lab, I had 50%. It was supposed to be 70%. That was part of my experience with Anderson. We had gotten accustomed to living with the racism. It was part of the landscape, part of the, the, the white noise that you had to accept. But like this thing sort of raised a question as to why and how unfair it was. This story then resonated throughout the black student population because each and every one of us had had some personal experience with being discriminated against. And so it became an opportunity for people to stand up for themselves. With James Brown, Black and Proud, as their soundtrack. Rodney John spent as much time agitating as he did in class. He wanted to convince fellow students, most of them white, to pressure the administration to take the grievances of the six black students seriously. But you know what? Large numbers of them simply could not identify with us as students because we were the other. And invariably they would say, well, Prove to me that Anderson is racist and then I will, you know, I'll be prepared to support you. And I would say to them, but that is what we're asking for, the opportunity to present our case so that people can judge. And if the judgment is made, you know, whatever it is, from an open hearing of what we have to say, then we'll accept it. Ten months of pushing, jockeying, negotiating, pleading with the university administration had produced nothing. It was a time in which the institutions that were threatened by social change were prepared to play hardball. The university could not allow the hearing to go forward because it would expose the naked power struggle and the racism that underlaid the liberal facade. The emperor was not in a beautiful gown, but was really in his underwear, just barely covering his arm nakedness. Wednesday, January 29th, 1969. 
An impromptu rally was called in the Henry F. Hall building. The tone was angry. Students had decided it was time to up the ante. A plan of action was made on the fly. 200 people jumped onto escalators and ran upstairs to the ninth floor and took over the computer center. The occupation of the university's computer center by black and white students, which began last night, is still on. Now it's up to the administration to see how much money, how much of the students' money they want to see go down the drain. The affair has escalated into incidents which have resulted in criminal charges, fistfights, abortive meetings, and now occupation of the computer center. Some 200 students insist the occupation will continue until criminal charges are dropped. And inside the center, where the black-white ratio is about half and half, the music is dominated by the calypso beat. We're entering the floor where the events in question took place. This is where the computer center was located, the nerve center of the university. Not only did they barricade themselves inside, but they made the decision that they were going to look after the equipment. And Jim Reed, of The Way It Is, has been the only journalist permitted by the students to gather material inside the computer center. They've tried to keep the place clean. There's been no vandalism. As the sit-in ends its fourth day, matters are still at an impasse, and the administration is considering its next move. So far, the sit-in is peaceful. Well, this, this whole case started initially with the charge of racism against Perry Anderson, which was glossed over, which was procrastinated, you know, for 10 months. Uh, they have not really had to confront this kind of issue before, face-to-face, uh, -face because of the small black population in Canada. It was originally agreed that the committee should be agreeable to both the black students and Anderson. So, since one of the agreements has not been made, therefore, as far as anybody who's on the side of justice is concerned, this hearing and this committee is totally invalid. On February 10th, the students believe that they have an agreement with the university, that the issue is resolved, they actually begin to clean up the computer room, and all of a sudden they realize that there is no agreement. So those remaining students and the few that trickle back in, they barricade themselves inside the computer room. Have you people got a spokesman in there? Look, I'm not interested in your stories. I just want to know if my daughter's there. Her name is Lise. Somewhere in that process, two things happen. The computers are destroyed. You see those images of those cars being thrown out the window as well as other, other things from the computer room. And then a fire breaks out. We're there outside the building, and a white mob, mob's appropriate designation, chanting, let the niggers burn. I understood what it was like to be lynched. And within the mob were people that I knew as students. Had it not been for police between us and that mob, we would have been torn apart. Six-hour rampage of destruction in the new building, and it all ended up to be one of the worst confrontations in Canadian student history, and a disastrous loss for the university with its computer center badly damaged. 
How is it that you were so surprised the students have been talking violence for quite a long time? Why was the university so unprepared for it? Well, because the manner of West Indians is somewhat more expansive than in our own. They tend to speak with large gestures. They tend to laugh, immoderately perhaps. The language is very picturesque, choice, frequently obscene. But nowadays, of course, since nobody seems to object to that kind of language, no one took it all that seriously. So 97 students were arrested, both white and black, almost half and half. Talking to some of the people that were involved in your occupation, they would tell you that some of the white students were treated differently from the black students. Send these people back where they came from. You have politicians speaking that way in Parliament. A large number of the students that were arrested were carrying Mao's little red book and were quoting from it when the police were actually arresting them. In fact, Lin Pao said just the other day that all good communists are supposed to encourage violence of this type. Obviously, some of the revolutionaries involved at Sir George Williams University were persuaded. I was reading James Baldwin and Richard Wright when I was in high school, and I had to stop because it was painful. My name is Yvonne Greer. I was coming into adulthood at the time of the Sir George Williams occupation and have been involved in the black community ever since. Yvonne Greer is a retired school guidance counselor. She was not a student at Sir George Williams, wasn't part of the sit-ins, never smashed a computer. She was a busy 20-year-old with a job. She'd met some of the student activists at parties. When some of them were arrested, she and her family raised money for bail. The Sir George events changed the direction of her life and the life of her community. People who were once friendly or at least polite to black people now came out and was telling anybody black, go back where you came from. And so older people in the black community who were comfortable or who didn't pay attention to the subtle racism that they encountered, now the racism wasn't subtle anymore. Immediately, there was a change in the community. And so many of us who may not have been in university, but we started to feel the racism because it became overt. And so then we worked with the students not only to help them with their court charges and so on, but to start something going in the community to stand up to the racism that we were being confronted with. In a reverse kind of warped way, you could say the invasion of the police of the computer center really got people moving and brought the black community to some self-realization. A summer school to help local black students prepare for university was organized. It's still going. Community associations sprung up. Two black newspapers were born. Yvonne Greer became an editor. There were lots of stories to tell. Wake up. Ain't nobody going to protect us but us. Grab anything you can and lay down these barricades now. Did you forget about the ancestors? You must love the taste of blood in your mouth. This week, a play called Blackout opened in Montreal. It was written collectively by former student activists and actors now involved in a theatre troupe called Dable d'Ote. It's a re-examination of what happened at Sir George 
the play is being performed on the modern campus of Concordia University, in the Hall Building, where the computer occupation took place on exactly the same dates. Please, I can't do this alone. Help me. Help yourselves before it's too late. Some of the dialogue in the play is taken verbatim from recordings at the time. Other parts are imagined, updated with a Black Lives Matter sensibility. The actors are in their 20s. Some had never heard about the events that took place two generations before they were born. They read, looked at old photos and news reports, listened to music, talked to their parents and grandparents and people who'd been part of the demonstrations. The fact that I can relate so heavily to them is both eye-opening but also like sad and frightening in a lot of ways. It is 50 years ago to the year, and yet black communities all across Canada and Montreal and, and Ontario from the East and the West are still asking for some of the most basic things, asking for respect, asking for a voice, asking for a place in society. Being black now and being black then, while there are a lot of differences, it's kind of the same. Like There is a movement to be unapologetically black, which is exactly what was happening around that time. That was the Black Panther movement. That was Afros. That was, I'm black and I'm proud. That was, I don't care what you think about me. There were people that were involved in this story from all perspectives and all vantage points. It was the six initial students that started the protest, but everyone in this community made a decision of where they stood in the protest, whether they were supporting it, whether they were the ones outside yelling, uh, burn and people burn. When anti-blackness happens, everyone makes a conscious choice to either support, to denounce, to protest against, or to stay silent. It's interesting that oh, we're still having this conversation. And when people like get upset about it and they're like, oh, why are we still talking about this? Why are we still talking about it? Like, if you're this upset about us talking about it, like you having to hear it, imagine how like exhausting it is for us to keep having to bring it up. Like you're exhausted, we are 10 times more exhausted than you are. Trust me, believe that. <laughs> Following the event, Sir George Williams revamped some key policies. Students were invited to participate on decision-making committees. An ombudsman's office was established, and regulations on the university's rights and responsibilities were adopted. Some lessons had been learned. That same year, 1969, Professor Perry Anderson was cleared of all charges of racism by the university. Many of the student protesters were given amnesty and returned to class to get their degrees. Their leaders didn't get off so lightly. Rosie Douglas and Ann Cools were sent to jail. Douglas, like some other West Indian students, was later deported and eventually elected the Prime Minister of the Caribbean island of Dominica. Ann Cools helped found one of Canada's first women's shelters and retired as a Canadian senator in August. Rodney John, one of the original student complainants, is 77 years old now. He completed his degree at Sir George Williams he never did become a doctor. He got a PhD in psychology and worked as a teacher, counselor, and mediator. He's still got fire in his belly. We have not yet reached where the society should be. Therefore, do not rest on your laurels. Social change will only take place if the people are prepared to fight for it. That documentary from David Gutnick. It first aired on the Sunday edition in 2019, and there's been some changes in the story since then. 
Concordia University now has a task force on anti-black racism, which recommended apologizing for how the students were treated in 1969. Last October, the university president finally did say sorry. We also apologize for the harm that was caused to black students at the university and for the negative... We wanted to know what the current students thought about that apology, so we gave a call to Amaria Phillips, the president of Concordia's Black Student Union. How I feel about change with the protests 50 years ago versus now, um, I feel like change... It's kind of slow. Um, there was a few incidents at our university, just like um, in the University of Ottawa and other universities across Canada where professors would say the N-word, right? And so, you know, hearing situations and incidents that are more recent and then parallel to, you know, this incident that happened, it makes you wonder, am I really um, safe as a student to, to study here? I feel like the lack of acknowledgement help it, it's part of why there was a lack of change as well because if it's just being brushed off constantly and these situations keep happening it's because people don't really believe that there is actual racism that exists in our institution which gives it the power to continue the apology from the university um i was mixed emotions about it just because um, at least we got an apology finally, even though it was 50 years later and there was some type of acknowledgement, but I really feel like it should have happened a lot sooner. I do know that uh, a few of the, st- the past students were in attendance when the apology was made and they did accept their apology. Hopefully it's not performative. Hopefully it's not something that they're just doing just to show that they did it and no tangible changes will actually happen in university afterwards. Um, I hope this is something that we could uh, uh, use to hold them accountable to their words so that later on us students hope that the university would have our back. That was Amaria Phillips of Concordia's Black Student Union. And that's it for this week's Hell of a Story. The show is produced by Tanera McLean, Julia Poggle, and me. We're part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. And it is Black History Month, so if you're looking for more stories of celebration and struggle, check out cbc.ca slash beingblackincanada or on Instagram, cbcbeingblackincanada. And hey, if you go into the Hell of a Story archives, we've got a great episode on being black on the prairies. Check that one out and do us a solid. Hit subscribe, save to your favorites, tell a friend about us, all those things to help people find us. I'm Duncan McHugh, Jimmy Gwitch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.